Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So tonight in our lecture, we're going to be moving into the doctrine of sin. So technically, if you if you want to be really technical, we're still kind of interconnected between the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. And I laid out kind of a tentative agenda uh, for the next couple of weeks. We would talk about sin tonight and then talk about how sin affects uh, a biblical worldview and the problem of evil and suffering in the world next week. But as I got to looking at the passages of Scripture I was going to have to deal with tonight, I, I felt the need to extend that. So tonight what we're going to do, we're going to look at the doctrine of sin with particular emphasis on the first sin from Genesis 3, how that first sin interconnects with the issue of idolatry uh, from a couple of passages of Scripture in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah. And then next week we're going to look at the doctrine of original sin. So we're going to take a little deeper theological look from Romans chapter 5 and uh, unpack that with relationship to the issue of free will uh, and what that means with regard to the fact that we're completely, or to use uh, a theological term, totally depraved. So that's next week. Then the week after that, we'll come back and look at sin as it affects uh, all things. So a problem of evil and suffering in the world, things that Job dealt with in his, in his glorious testimony and challenging testimony. So that's going to be the next three weeks, and then we'll see where that leaves us. And uh, ultimately what we'll do when we finish the doctrine of sin is we'll move to the doctrine of Christ, and we'll talk about Christ specifically. So tonight we're going to be in two passages of Scripture. Genesis 3, I'll read from Isaiah 45 in a little bit, but Genesis 3 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me begin with a quote that should be on your handout in front of you. It comes from Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God. He he writes, The devastating loss of shalom, that is God's peace, through sin is described in Genesis 3. We are told that as soon as we determined to serve ourselves instead of God, as soon as we abandoned living for and enjoying Him as our highest good, the entire created world became broken. Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turn from God, the entire warp and woof of the world unraveled. Disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the result of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. We have lost God's shalom physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, and culturally. Things now fall apart. In Romans 8, Paul says that the entire world is now in bondage to decay and subject to futility and will not put, be put right until we are right. I read that quote at the outset simply because I want us to remember as we deal with the doctrine of sin, we're not just looking at it from the lens of a theological viewpoint. It's important that we grasp it theologically. It's important that we dive into it and look at some texts of Scripture that help us make sense of what's going on in our sinful world. But all of the things that are affected by what we're going to talk about in Genesis 3 and other passages affect real-world issues, real-world things. The fact that some of you woke up this morning hurting because you're getting a little older. You know, that is an effect or an effect of sin. What I just shared about DSS and the need for someone to take a child into their home because 
a mom and dad aren't capable or don't love their children. That is a result of sin. It's all a result of sin. Uh, That helps us make sense of the world, but it also forces us to deal with what's going on around us. So our first text is this, Genesis 3. What does Genesis 3 teach us about sin? Ultimately, it teaches us this, that about sin as undermining God and His Word. So when we look at sin in Genesis 3, sin is an, uh, undermines God's Word. Read with me, if you will, Genesis 3. We'll just uh, read a good chunk of this tonight. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and, and that, was, that was, by the way, her first mistake. She's talking to a snake. Okay, so that, that's problematic. She's listening to an animal, a creature, rather than God who spoke. So the serpent said, did, not God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we've just seen there is the first sin first sin by humans at least, uh, in the world. And, and what is going on in that fr- first sin? A lot that's going on, I think. I think there's idolatry going on. I think there's self-centeredness going on. We'll try to make those connections from this passage and some others. But here's what the bottom line is. When we undermine God's Word, we are deceived. That's the first truth. When we undermine God's Word, we are deceived. The very first temptation... From the snake to Eve had to do with what God said. That was his first attempt at getting people to turn from God. It wasn't a temptation to do something. It wasn't a temptation to see something. It was a temptation to not believe what God had spoken. Has God said Has he spoken this? Has he said what what he claims to have said or what you claim (coughs) to have heard he said? One of the reasons that's important is that temptation hasn't really changed. Satan's tactics are no different. Thousands of years later, uh, his primary way to get people to turn from God is to get people to disbelieve what God has said. That's why we spend about eight or nine weeks going through the doctrine of revelation, giving a framework and a foundation to the Bible. Folks, if if we walk away from the Bible thinking this is not God's Word and we don't really have to listen to it, it's not authoritative, then Satan's already effectively won in our hearts and lives because he's gotten us to question and disbelieve what God has said. And when we do that, when we undermine God's Word, the bottom line is we're deceived. It leads us to error. It led Eve to error. It led Adam to error in the midst of this and led him to some pretty significant errors. If you notice, Eve added to what God had said. 
Satan questioned what God had said. Has God actually said not to eat of this tree? Notice what Eve's response was. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. If you go back to chapter 2, we won't do this. I'll let you do it on your own. God never said anything about not touching the tree. He just said, Don't eat of the tree. So, so there's a dual error here. If we go to Scripture with an idea to change it or to not believe it because we think, you know, that can't be God, or we go to Scripture to add to it. So we can't take away from what God's Word says. That's a deception of the enemy. We can't add to what God says. That's a deception from the enemy. That's why it is in our best interest as followers of Christ to go to Scripture with the idea and the mindset, this is God's authoritative Word. What it says, I'm going to do, and we're going to practice it. Now, there is room at different places in Scripture for differences of interpretation. There's room for some struggle, trying to figure out what it is that God actually means in this command or this issue. But to be quite frank with you, those areas of interpretive difference, while we're going to talk about some of those in some of our theology lessons over the course of the weeks ahead and months ahead, and depending on how long it takes us and how long I talk, years ahead. um, But while there is room for some interpretive difference, the primary focus of Scripture about God and sin and redemption and salvation and Christ is abundantly clear. And really when Satan tries to get us to not believe a part of it or add to a part of it, what he's trying to do is to get us to not believe and add to the parts that are the important parts. Does that make sense? So when we undermine God's word, we're deceived. I'll give you a second observation here. When we're deceived... So when we're in a state of deception, we are then tempted to pursue pleasure and fulfillment on our own or outside of God's parameters. I mean, Adam and Eve had it great. They didn't deal with smart aleck kids. Right? They didn't have to worry about animals that were going to kill them. The only animal they had to worry about was a snake, a talking snake. Go figure. I mean, that's, that was, they had it fantastic. They didn't even know they were unclothed or that being unclothed was something to be ashamed of. They had it made. And yet, when they became deceived, they started looking for something outside of what God had provided. And so, look at the temptation. The, the enemy, Satan said, God knows that you will be like him, like him, which is, essentially the temptation is idolatrous, and we'll come to that in a moment. It's this this little hint that, oh, Adam and Eve, you can be better than you actually are. Uh, Not in the qualitative sense, good as in good versus evil, but you can be more like God. You can be like God if you eat of this tree. And so basically what that alludes to is the fact that the underlying sin in all other sins is putting someone or something in the place of God. And in this case, the temptation was to put themselves in God's place. You know, when you, God knows when you eat of it, you'll be like Him. And, and then here's what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of it. 
So there are three specific types of temptations that she faced in that moment. And you can see those in the New Testament described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh. It looked good. It looked good to her. If, if sin did not look appealing, we wouldn't sin. The reason humans have such a struggle with certain temptations is because those temptations look good to our eyes. And that's what took place with Eve in this moment. The temptation looked good to her eyes. It was a lust of the, lust of the flesh. Uh, the second temptation was a lust of the eyes or a delight. She saw that what that fruit was was something that, that, would, that, would, uh, that would be desirous to her. Which, by the way, is part of the reason why God said in the first command in Exodus chapter, the first of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, don't make, any, don't make a graven image for yourself, commands one and two. It's why God made it about images, because here's the reality, folks. We begin to sin when we let our eyes look at things that we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at. I mean, I mean, you can go all the way from the sins of lust, fleshly lust, it's what you see that drives that, or what you imagine in your mind. Or you can go to covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. He said in Ephesians 5, when you want something that somebody else has, that is essentially idolatry. But guess what? If you never see something that you want, you'll never be idolatrous. Let me make, let me make a, a kind of a situational complaint for a moment to, to illustrate this point. There have been times that I've had the opportunity to travel in third world countries on mission trips. And it's amazing to me how people in places like Honduras and Guatemala and Africa are so happy. Some of you have experienced that. You go meet people in other places and they just seem happy. And then you look around and see what they have. And you're like, man, they, they don't even have a floor. They, they don't have a mattress on their, that they're sleeping in. They don't, they don't have these things that I have, and they're just so happy. You know, part of the reason why, they don't know what they don't have. Part of our struggle with idolatry and with sin in the American West is how much stuff we have, and the whole point of marketing whole point of marketing in our world is to tell you that you need a newer car, a bigger house, or a faster smartphone. Now, it's not, it's not inherently wrong to have a newer car, a, fa- a bigger house, or a faster smartphone. But here's the problem. If we're constantly looking at something else, thinking, I need something bigger, better, faster more expensive, then we're falling into the very same temptation Eve started in in Genesis chapter 3. She looked at that fruit and said it would be something that, that pleased her eyes. So folks, one of the things, it's not really a part of the application uh, in terms of a specific takeaway, but one of the things we need to realize, we need to protect what we see. We need to guard what we see because if we don't, if we just let the world dictate what goes into our eyes, what we look at, then we're going to become covetous. 
We're going to become lustful because that is what the world wants from us and ultimately what Satan wants from us. So there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, there's the pride of life. She saw it and she believed it would make her wise. Ultimately, I think what she thought is it would make me more like God. Not in the sense of purity, righteousness, holiness, because folks, she didn't know sin at that point. You know, you and I need to strive to be like God, absolutely, but the temptation here was to a perfect person, person who had never sinned, her desire was to be God, to be in control, to be in charge, to rule. And by the way, that is the, the grand struggle throughout human history. It's why you have dictators and madmen. It's why you have murderers. It's why you have abusers. It's why you have people in your workplaces that you absolutely can't get along with because they have to be the one who's in charge and who's in control. What is that? It's the temptation that Satan gave to Eve here in the garden. She saw that that fruit would make her wise, basically would make her like God. She wanted to be God. She wanted to be the one who was in charge of everything. She only had a couple of rules. Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of the creation that was there. Don't eat this tree. I mean, I can only count like three laws that she had had to this point in her experience, and yet she wanted to be the one to make the rules. And that's what got her in trouble. So when we are deceived, we're tempted to pursue pleasure and fulfillment on our own outside of God's parameters. By the way, God's parameters are always designed to protect the, the, the aims of the laws are not made to make us miserable. God didn't give us the Ten Commandments because He's an old fuddy-duddy who just wants to keep us from having fun. God gave us the Ten Commandments because as soon as we move outside of the Ten Commandments, we move outside of His protection over us. That's why the, the commandments follow redemption. God redeemed His people. I am the Lord your God. He brought you out of the land of slavery. Now here's what I want you to do to reflect that you're my people brought out of the land of slavery. I want you to obey me because in obedience you're uh, uh, abiding by the rules of the covenant, the, the standards of the covenant, and that's where protection happens. But what did the people of Israel do? They did what we do. They did what Adam and Eve did. We push out of... The commandments, because we want to do our own thing, our own way. So we step out from under God's parameters, and ultimately it means we step out from under God's protections. Let me show you something else. Observation number three from Genesis 3. When we are deceived into sin, our sin results in us blaming others for our own flaws. So verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, uh, so God's, the pattern there was that Adam and Eve were walking with God. God created Adam and Eve to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. God created Adam and Eve to experience a relationship with Him. And, and just to say this at the outset, there is no greater privilege that you and I have. No greater privilege than to be in relationship with God. There are a lot of good things you can do. A lot of wonderful things you can do. A lot of wonderful Christian activities you can do. Like be at church on a Wednesday night or come to worship on a Sunday morning. And those are great. And, and they're an aspect of us being in relationship with God. There are a lot of things you can do to serve people. Meet their needs. Take them a meal. Minister to people. Take care of your children. Fantastic. Do you remember what Jesus, that conversation Jesus had with Martha? 
about Mary. Martha was busy doing all these things, and Mary decided to sit at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said to Martha, Mary has chosen the most important thing. Listen, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God came down and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That is what the Christian life is to be all about, a relationship with God. That was the pattern. But of course, this day, something was wrong. So he came down and walked in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. By the way, sin causes you to run from God. This isn't in my notes or in your notes, but you can, uh, you can watch this in people's lives. When they start to drift from their spouses, when they start to drift from their church, when they start to drift from the reading of God's Word, if they're in a Sunday school class and they drift from that, if they're in a discipleship group and they drift from that, what you can assume in many situations, not all the time, is maybe they're drifting from God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a kind of a pastor for a moment, put on, of course, you know that, but like my, 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 my kind of legalism hat. Some have asked me over the years, how often should you attend church? And some tell me, hey, I couldn't be here this Sunday and I apologize for being gone. And some have apologized for not being back since COVID. And I've had all these kind of conversations. And, you know, if we think of church in some legalistic fashion, I have to be at church because God's got a heavenly, like, uh, like scorecard. And he's checking how many times I've been at Sunday this year, at church this year. Then we've missed the point. But why do we need church? We need church because we have a relationship with God. And worship, corporate worship, is one way that I engage in my relationship with God. But here's the reality. When we start moving away from those biblically affirmed ways of engaging in our relationship with God, we do exactly what Adam and Eve did here. They hid from God. Just so you know... And this is a way you can pray for people who may be hiding from God. You can't really hide from God. You, you might be uncomfortable coming to church because you've got a sin that you're not willing to deal with. But God knows where you are and God knows where your sin is. And God knows what's going on in your life. So those folks that you may be concerned about where they are, and I promise you there are folks I'm concerned about where they are. Or where they're not might be a better way to say that. I'm concerned for them. Because I wonder if something like this is going on in their life where they're running from God. Because they're holding on to some sin. That's what Adam and Eve did. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Isn't that an interesting question? God knew where they were. The question is not... A lack of knowledge on God's part. The question is an invitation on God's part for Adam and Eve to come back to Him. And you just, you just get that for a second. And and this is this is good news for all of us. So so let's just track forward for a moment. You're going to mess up tomorrow or later this week or or next week. You're going to really sin. And because you sin, you do something disobedient, unrighteous, ungodly. God is not waiting to judge you for that. He's not standing up in heaven like Zeus with a lightning bolt ready to zap you. He didn't come down to walk with Adam and Eve to destroy them, though they would experience judgment later on in the text. He came down to meet with them. 
He asked them where they were because God wants us in relationship. His desire for us is to be right with him. So bottom line, folks, when you mess up, when I mess up, the best thing we can do is just go to the Lord. Okay, I've messed up. I've sinned. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Not so that we abuse the grace of God, but because he went to the cross so that we could experience his grace. And it's just pictured there in that question. So Adam said, uh, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. One of the consequences of sin is fear. They had never been afraid before. And what's so sad about the fear that they had here is it's not, I mean, it's real fear, right? I mean, if we're going to be afraid of someone or something, be afraid of God. He is able in His holy splendor to strike us in judgment. He doesn't do that, not at the outset. He will judge, but if we're going to be afraid of someone, be afraid of God. But what's sad is the one who made them, the one who walked with them, is the one they were afraid of. They were afraid of Him because they had entered into sin. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, an opportunity, an invitation. Adam, tell me what's going on. Adam had an opportunity to own up to his sin. Verse 12, you know what he said. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. You ever blamed somebody else for your own sins? Of course you have, right? I mean, if you got kids, you watch them do that all the time. It was my brother that made me hit him. If he hadn't looked at me, looked at me wrong, I wouldn't have hit him. Well, what do you do to look at you wrong? Well, you know, I, 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 I don't know, messed his bed up. I mean, there's all kind of stuff that kids do. I, I'm trying not to share the inappropriate things my boys do because... You get enough of that, and they get enough of that. I don't want to embarrass them too much, but you've been there. We blame other people. And then, of course, God spoke to her and said, What did you do, Eve? And Eve blamed the snake. I'm going to say this. Blaming doesn't work. It never works. It's never somebody else's fault for your sin. It's just just not. In fact, even if it were, even if, even if, and, and there are times people sin against us, right? And it causes us to act in wrong ways. But God is not waiting on us to deal with that person and their sin. He's waiting on us to deal with our sin. God deals with us as individuals. And so the, the tendency to blame others is a reality of sin. And it's a deception, So the next time, you just absolutely blow it, and it's your spouse's fault. Don't confess your spouse's sin. Confess yours. Deal with yourself. Again, I'm going to be a pastor for a moment, and I just... um, There are some people that are going through some hard stuff. I keep praying for them on Wednesday nights, and... um, and and in a couple of weeks, really, on Saturday, November 5th, we're going to have a marriage seminar here at the church. Some folks uh, at Samaritan's Purse, Chris and Lisa Seamers, they do marriage ministry at Samaritan's Purse. They meet with uh, they meet with couples all over the country. 
uh, in Alaska and, and, and uh, Nashville and other places, they bring in couples from the Army, from the Armed Forces, and do marriage retreats with them and help them know what it means to love one another and love one another in a right biblical relationship. They're going to help us with that retreat on Saturday, November 5th. Uh, and as I was talking to them and kind of preparing some of those things, all the details, by the way, for that will be in the beacon next week. Try to get the cost and times and all that stuff. Love for all of you to be there. Love for some couples that I'm talking to to be there. But uh, one of the things that I, I've noticed when marriages are really struggling, it's always the other person's fault. Always. It's that, that per, if she would just do this, if, she would, if he would just listen to that, I mean, that blame game goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it never works. You're never going to change your spouse. You're never going to change your child. You're never going to change your parent in terms of the blame being put at their feet and it fixed things. What God invites is always us to deal with our own sin. That's why he talked to Adam specifically about Adam. That's why I talked to Eve specifically about Eve. He's inviting them to experience uh, victory over their own sin. Uh, Michael Horton put it this way in his uh, Christian theology book. He said, There is no human being since the fall who is only a victim, yet it is also true that every sinner is also sinned against. We are both perpetrators and victims. It's true. I mean, there are some things, some of you have had things happen to you that are absolutely wrong. It wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve the abuse you received. But that doesn't abdicate you from the sins you've committed anyway. Or, or it doesn't. It means that we have to deal with the sin that's in our own heart in order for God to help us deal with the sins that were done against us. And the only solution to that is to go to God through Jesus Christ. And by the way, the beautiful thing about Genesis 3... And we've got to move on from this text and look at another one. But the beautiful thing about Genesis 3 is it doesn't end in a place of despair. I mean, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and he judges the snake and he judges Adam and Eve. And, uh, and we're not going to get into the pains of childbirth and all of, all of those things tonight. But, you know, those are aspects of the judgment of God upon our sinfulness. Uh, but Genesis 3.15 goes like this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the proto-evangelicum or euangelion. It's the first gospel. It's when God says to Adam and Eve after their sinfulness, hey, listen, there's coming a day when your sin's going to be dealt with. The snake who is your enemy, who is Satan, he's going to be destroyed and there's going to be an opportunity of forgiveness. And of course, that imagery is borne out through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And God invites us to experience that forgiveness individually and personally. And so that's what happens with, with Genesis chapter 3. But what, 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 is there something deeper going on in Genesis 3 than sometimes we give it credit? I'm going to ask if you would to turn to another text of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. We won't get all the nuances of it, uh, but we will get a few. There are two texts in, the, in, in Scripture. There's one in Isaiah, and there's one here in... Uh, in Ezekiel 28, that uh, scholars sometimes associate with the fall of Satan. Um, this one is one of those where they sometimes associate with the fall of Satan. I'll show you why. 
and it could be false Satan, it could be Adam that, the, that, the, that Ezekiel's getting at or God speaking through Ezekiel's getting at. But I want us to, to make a connection with part of the real sin that's going on here in Genesis 3. So if you will, pick up in uh, Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. And so there's a specific prophecy against a specific prince. And, and the implication is, because your heart is proud, you have said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god, uh, though you make your heart like the heart of a god. So there, at the outset, there's this prince of Tyre, and evidently this particular king or prince, he had a, a, set himself up as a deity. Now that's not all that uncommon when you look at Old Testament history. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He, re, he saw this vision and then he built an idol to, be, to, to represent himself. You can go to Acts chapter 12 where, where a particular king believed himself to be a god because of his oratory skills and God struck him dead with worms in Acts chapter 12. I mean, there, there's, there are, that's, this is not necessarily new, but it is a specific judgment thinking that one is a god. In other words, it's idolatrous, putting something before God. If you move over to verse 11... Uh, Ezekiel writes again, he continues, he said, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now this is where the connection either to Satan or Adam comes in. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, and that word trade carries with it the specific idea of money and wealth and things that one desires. In the abundance of trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. That word uh, uh, destroyed in verse 16 could also read banished, cast away. Banished you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you. Uh, a couple of things about interpretation, scriptural interpretation. There are passages of scripture that are challenging for interpreters to navigate what is it that God is actually trying to get at. The text means something specific. And there is a very direct sense where these prophecies in chapter 28 are spoken against the prince of Tyre, the king of Tyre. In other words, there's a direct connection, historical connection, where Ezekiel was to say something that had to do with a living king that was in his day. But the imagery and language, he was in Eden, 
cast down, banished, cast out. Commentators are divided as to whether or not that is the enemy, Satan, who was a cherub, an angel, or whether it's talking about Adam, who was essentially the, the firstborn of creation, the, the imagery of, of, of blessedness and perfection. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly whether he's alluding to Satan or whether he's alluding to Adam here. But what is clear is that the sin that he was cast out for was the sin of thinking he was someone bigger than he really was. Your heart is proud. You said, I'm a God. That's what the, the, the imagery is. You desired all these things because you wanted to be in control. You wanted to have glory. You were on the holy mount of God. You wanted to be like what I had experienced. You had everything, but you wanted more than that, is what Ezekiel is claiming. In his book, We Become What We Worship, which, by the way, is a pretty heady read, but a fascinating book on idolatry, a biblical theology of idolatry. I would encourage you to read it if you're interested in that study. G.K. Bill puts it this way. Ezekiel 28 and its understanding of Genesis 3 conceives of the sin to be the rearranging of existence around the self. With the result that it comes to be its own creator, healer, and sustainer. Consequently, all sin includes idolatry. So bottom line, what Adam did, what the prince of Tyre did, what the king of Tyre did, is they decided they wanted to be in charge. And so where does that fit for us today? As I mentioned Sunday in our sermon from Isaiah 6, our problem isn't making an image that we bow down to. That's not what we do. We don't have idols in our bedrooms in the sense of something we bow down to and believe that it is a deity. What we do find, though, is that we are addicted to being in charge, in control, ruling our own Lord, our own Savior, our own sustainer, our own master. The, the addiction to self is idolatrous. And it does permeate, unfortunately, all of, you know, Western, the Western world all of the world, but the Western world in its addiction to coveting things, desiring things, wanting to be in control, wanting to be in power. I mean, you just see the illustrations in politics. Politicians typically don't necessarily care about being right or wrong. They just want to be in power. That's an addiction itself. Am I wrong? You've worked for bosses. They don't really care whether they're right or wrong, moral or ethical. They just want to be in charge. They just want to have it their way. If you've been a parent, your three-year-old does this. They just do it more blatantly and less carefully than we as adults do. They want to be in charge. And they scream, fuss, cry, whine, hit, throw when they don't get their way. And guess what we do when we don't get our way? We sulk. We complain. We whine. We blame. We do the same thing. What it boils down to is that the first sin is really the sin of I want to be in charge. Which is I really want to be God. And so I'm going to worship myself. And, and if you don't think that that can permeate Christianity, it absolutely can. 
unfortunately, some of the most self-absorbed and selfish people I have ever been around in my life have claimed the name of Jesus. Some of you have worked at restaurants on Sunday afternoons and know that to be the case. And some of the meanest, worst people in the world to serve on a Sunday afternoon are people who just come from church. God forbid if any of us have ever acted that way. But I've been around some. I mean, there's not a lick of patience and grace and kindness. and There's not a good tip. There's not a kind word. There is you serve. What is that? It's an addiction to self. It's idolatry. It's evil. Ian Provan writes, uh, you don't have this quote in front of you, but the fundamental idolatry described by the Bible lies at the heart of the very modern idolatries, the idolatry of self. The self is at the center of existence as a God. The ultimate significance is found in God-like individual autonomy, self-set goals, and boundaries. And really that takes us back to what we were looking at last week. The idea that you can choose who you want to be Regardless of your biology, you can become whatever you want. The LGBTQ and add in all the other 12 monikers there to identify self. What is that? It's self-worship. It's idolatrous. It's saying I'm the one who gets to dictate everything that happens about me. And, And the Bible tells us that that's not the way the world functions. That's the way the world is. Because we live in a sinful world, but that's not the way the world was designed. God designed us to submit to His authority, to bow before Him. And so what that boils down to is that you and I have an obligation to surrender to the God who is and look in our own hearts to make sure that idolatry isn't present there. Let me give you some takeaways and we'll do a little bit of practical application here. Uh, Takeaway number one is a pretty obvious one. We will look at that a little more deeply next week. Sin in the garden had immediate, catastrophic, cosmic, and eternal consequences. I mean, the sin in the garden wasn't just something Adam and Eve did a whole bunch of years ago. It's something Adam and Eve did a whole bunch of years ago that's affected every single person living on planet Earth. It's affected Earth itself. We'll unpack that a little more deeply next week. Uh, Number two, as a takeaway, the incipient sins of not trusting God's word and idolatry are intricately connected. Uh, If you look at Romans 1, and we won't read all of this. In Romans 1, Paul connects turning from God to idolatry. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what's the, what's the thing that they do? They don't listen to what God says. They ignore what God says. And what do they do when they do that? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key verse, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what did they do? They didn't trust what God's Word said, and so they exchanged God for things, for animals, for beings, for the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the idolatries of the ancient world. We do the same thing. We don't trust God's word. We exchange the glory of God for, guess what? Us. Here's the irony. This is takeaway number three. 
The irony of idolatry is that men worship what they make by their hands. If you think about Old Testament idolatry, the thing that God mocks in the book of Habakkuk, Psalm 106, uh, what he's kind of getting at in many places in the book of Isaiah is that men would, uh, Habakkuk puts it this way, somebody cuts down a tree, half the tree they used to, to burn as firewood, the other half they used to make an idol. So they, they burn part of it and then they worship part of it. Utterly ridiculous. Okay, uh, obviously we can see that. Here's the irony. The irony is that men worship what they make with their hands. What's the solution? Catch this. The solution to sin or idolatry is to recognize that we've been made in God's image by His hands in order to worship Him. God turns that irony on its head. Listen to Isaiah chapter 29 verse 23. For when He sees His children, this is the Lord speaking, the work of my hands... God made us, and it's anthropomorphic language. He spoke us into existence. The, the language is the work of my hands. Now, why that's important is because the, the, the terminology throughout the entire Old Testament, when an idol is made, it is fashioned by a man's hands, the work of man's hands. That's the way that terminology is used. And, and then that image, that idol, is what gets in the way of one's worship of God. When God says in Isaiah, you are the work of my hands, he's intentionally kind of co-opting that language saying, hold on a second, you, were, you make this to worship an idol that you make with your hands, but guess what? I've made you with my hands. That's what God's saying, the language he's saying. Now watch this, Isaiah 45, verse 5, begins this way. God speaks, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God, I equip you, though you do not know me, that my people, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is a, a direct affirmation of God against idolatry. He's saying, there is no other besides me. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout, for I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. That's what God's saying to all of us. Woe to us if we strive against the God who made us. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making, or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Basically what God is saying is, using the potter and clay illustration, how dare you look to me and say, what are you doing with what you've made? Here's the beauty of what God made with his hands. He made us in His image. The tendency of sinful humanity is to make things with our hands or desire things with our lives to put in the place of God. Yet all the way back at the very beginning, God made us in His image 
to worship him. Now watch this. And God saved us by sending his son into human flesh to be God incarnate, the very picture of God in human experience so that we could be in relationship with God and he could restore what went wrong in Genesis 3. God invites us, the solution to us and the internal idolatries that we have is about as simple as you can possibly get. It is trust and obey what God says in his word. And if you're worshiping God, you can't worship anything else. So while I could tell you, go out and try to figure out your idols, what I will tell you is go out and read God's word and get a good, great true picture of God in your mind and your eye, I'm going to tell you what that'll do. The more you read Scripture, the more you pray and worship God, the more you're going to want to be among God's people praying and worshiping God. And the more you're among God's people praying and worshiping God, singing and praising and glorifying God, the more you're going to be... Those, those things that don't mean anything are going to be driven out of your life. I think there's a hymn that says something like that. Turn my eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Folks, that's what we need. You want to deal with the idolatry of self? Look to the book that tells you about the one who made us, not to internal self. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 